You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Nomad, Own Less, Live More, and by Lithodomos VR, bringing archaeologically accurate 3D reconstruction of the ancient world straight to your smartphone. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 46. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we talk about drones again. This time we get into gear and function. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. We've got another drone podcast, and we're going to have a series of these, I'm sure, coming up. Um, But this is another one, our last episode, episode 44 on drones was uh, all about really the ethics of using drones. And we included, with our including the guests that we have today, we had also Sally Applin on, and she had some fantastic information and research talking about um, the ethics of using drones and algorithms and all kinds of good stuff. So go check out that episode. But for today, we're going to get into the gear. What kinds of drones do we have? What are we using? What are we doing? Um, and to do that, we've got four Chris's and a Matthew, and uh, <laughs> we're going to introduce them right now um so we'll start with uh chris hipwood go ahead chris hi chris uh thanks for having me on the show um i'm the uh i guess i kind of got a lot of titles where i'm working at but um <laughs> over, would call me the uh, aerial operations manager for uh, nwb environmental and we do uh, cultural resource management work and uh so i'm also an archaeologist and uh also a gis technician and um, i'm out of uh, san diego california Oh my God! Is that a new title in archaeology? Aerial operations specialist, or let's call it aerial archaeologist. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there's that. But um, I mean, I, I pretty much am just dealing with the the UAS or uh, drones all all the time. So um, awesome. Uh, handling all aspects of that, being the project manager for anything involving using um, drones. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I love it. Um, a good model for other companies to follow as well. All right, Chris Blair. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on again. Um, I am the uh, environmental GIS specialist for um, a company based in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, And I'm basically the same thing, a hybrid archaeologist slash GIS guy um, trying to integrate and incorporate um, drones into my workflow, basically. Awesome. And finally, we have Chris, I'm sorry, Matthew Witten. (laughs) Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Hi, um, I'm Matthew Witten. I'm uh, a hail out of uh, tennis, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I am, uh, I'm a grad student at Middle Tennessee State University. I'm working at two separate positions, one for the county as a uh, GIS uh, apprentice and another for the Center for Historic Preservation. I've got a few different avenues I'm pursuing. Um, and right now, I'm just happy to be the rookie of the crew and here for another battle of Matthew and the five Chris's or four Chris's. <laughs> four Chris's. Nice. <laughs> we'll make you an honorary Chris by the end of this. I'm sure of it. Wow, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, like I said, this is going to be a nuts and bolts episode. So I want to talk about the types of drones um, that we're all using and what caused us to choose those. Um, you know, what, what kind of decision process did we go through? I want to start with, uh, with Chris Hipwood because he has the most official sounding title and I'm very intrigued by that. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I've heard of your company before and it's, it sounds like you guys are just really on the cutting edge of, uh, of technology and really trying to stay up on um, not only, you know, efficiency techniques, but, but trying to figure out, how best can we use this new technology to, um, you know, to to 
record our resources, you know, and to, to do a good job. And, and do you even need it, actually? So why don't you tell us what you're currently using? Do you guys have a fleet of drones? Do you have one that you just go back to? And then and we'll talk about your choices for those. Uh, yeah, we're using um, almost all of it. Actually, all of it is uh, DJI, um, which is the dominant manufacturer in uh, the, the cheaper, more commercially available drones or consumer level or mm-hmm. prosumer, I guess some some people would call some of them. For sure. Uh, we do have one 3D robotics solo that we got a year ago, although that, that company is pretty much tanked by this point. Um, they're actually going to like a service. In, in DJI, we've got a wide range of uh, anywhere from the Phantoms, uh, which are the smaller, the, the more ubiquitous one that you probably see on TV the most, the little mm-hmm. four propeller quadcopter. We've got a couple versions of those. Uh, Going to pick up the new one pretty soon, the Phantom 4 Pro, which is pretty amazing. Um, and then we've got a, uh, um, a DJI Inspire, also popular. Uh, that's probably more on the prosumer level, uh, a little bit larger than the Phantom, still four propellers. And then we've got a uh, DJI Matrice 100, which wow. is pretty much an industrial version of the uh, of the Inspire. It's a lot more customizable. Uh, has a lot of ports ready to go that you can plug custom gear and sensors to. And then um, all the way up to the, uh, we've got a, a Spreading Wings S1000, which is an octocopter, uh, can fly maximum about 23 pounds uh, at takeoff, uh, can carry about 10 pounds worth of sensors. Um, some people put LiDAR units uh, or bigger cameras. Um, uh, probably the best thing would be to get a really high-end uh, camera for for photogrammetry and for mapping, which right now the one of the dominant ones would be like the Sony cameras, like a Sony A7 is a lot of people doing fantastic work with that camera. Um, and yeah, so it's all been copter-based. I've really had my eyes on one to pick up a fixed wing, and I've just been on the fence about what to go with until we've got a real use case for it. The the DJI um, Matrice, or Matrice, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but it's a... Uh... It, that's a that's a hexacopter, right? Six. Uh no. The okay. So there's two matrices. There we have the okay. matrice 100, which is the quadcopter, so the ah. four propellers, and it's it's in a lot of ways it uh, shares a lot of parts with the Inspire. Same motors. It takes the same cameras. The the one you're referring to is the matrice 600, which just came out last summer, uh, and that's a uh, hexacopter. It's actually a replacement for that octocopter we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, that thing flies uh, over 30 pounds uh, max takeoff weight. Um, it still can only carry about 10 to 12 pounds of payload. A lot of that excess weight is taken up by the uh, six batteries that it takes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So would you say the bigger differences between the, the DJI Matrice 100 and the, the Inspire Pro are, uh, it sounds like it's basically the, the ability to um, add, other batter- add other components more easily, I would say, from the sounds of it. And then it has the... Uh, um, I don't know, it probably seems to have the same probably weight and things like that, I would imagine, and, and have the same functionality from that standpoint. Uh, yes, it's. Uh, I believe overall it's a little bit lighter. It doesn't do the fancy legs folding up. Um, so your legs can get into your shots if you're trying to, it wouldn't be a good platform for cinematography where you're trying to get mm-hmm. the camera to, to spin independently of where the, the aircraft is pointing. Mm-hmm. Um, the legs are a lot wider, so it's really stable landings, although the 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 Inspire is pretty good as well. It's not likely to tip over too easily. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing would be just how customizable it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that sounds fantastic. I, I haven't actually, I've seen the, the Matrice and, uh, but I've never used it. I've never seen it in operation. So that's good to know about that. What made you guys go down this route? What was the first drone you guys got? The, so my, uh, 
literally about two years ago now, my boss picked up a um, a Phantom 2 Vision Plus, mm -hmm. which at the time was a uh, fairly revolutionary model where it had a very small camera. There was a Vision before that, but the camera was pretty bulky. Um, but it was the the I guess the first one that that really kind of gave rise to the 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 later uh, Phantom models. We've got the integrated camera. It's not even really designed to have a different camera put on there. You could do it if you want to dig into it, but uh, but just plug and play that it, the camera could take photos and have the GPS uh, location tagged onto them. Um, looking back on it now, the cameras it quickly became um, obsolete uh, compared to the newer cameras. Uh, it had a big fisheye. Uh, uh, effect going on with the lens and um, and the video wasn't as good or as crisp but overall for the time when it came out it was uh, you know sort of what DJI is known for now it was your best bang for the buck buy it at the store uh, it's all ready to go you just throw on the battery ideally you read the, all the directions so you know what it's going to do and then you can go out and fly and uh, take photos and video and see it live on your controller awesome well, I've got a lot more questions for you um, regarding some of those things, but let's move into uh, the gear that some of the other guys are using. Um, Matthew, what's your experience? Well, uh, my, my experience actually is extremely limited, but I mm -hmm. did literally just walk in the door with a brand new uh, little test test copter. It's a uh, what is it? Tech Toys Aerodrone Wi-Fi. It's an interesting little uh, model. It has a little camera on it, but... I don't know much about it other than the fact that I'm going to try it out. Give me a little bit of testing, testing around. Well, and that's fantastic because, you know, uh, Chris Sims and I, we had a kind of a holiday episode near Christmas. And um, we uh, we came up with the idea of having a practice drone. And it's not just a – I mean, it's not just a mess around kind of thing because a lot of these drones, as, you know, Chris, Chris Hipwood, you can probably attest to having flown a lot of different ones – I mean, the flight characteristics on even a, a $30 quadcopter that you can get at a gas station these days, um, uh, the flight characteristics are essentially the same. Uh, obviously, the speeds are different. The, 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 you know, what it can do is different. But the, the actual functional controls of turning left, right, spinning, you know, up, down, things like that, you can really learn a lot about how to fly your really expensive drone by flying a cheap one that you can run into a wall and then you just go buy another one <laughs> yeah, when, they, when all the props break on that thing. Yeah. So you don't want to run a Matrice 600 or, uh, you know, you're spreading wings S 1000 into a wall. That's a pretty serious mistake. Um, but you run one right. of these little ones into the wall and you're not, uh, you're not too bad off. You're not too far off. Yeah. We ended up well, getting retweeted by Best Buy on Twitter for, uh, <laughs> yeah, our did. suggestion to, to buy a drone. Yeah. It was pretty fantastic. <laughs> Cause uh, somebody listened to our podcast and they said, I have the ArcPod ArcPod net to blame for, uh, for buying this drone as a, you know, point of sale item at Best Buy or something like that. And Best Buy retweeted it. It was pretty, it was pretty odd. They even commented. I can't remember what the comment was, but, um, that was great. All right, uh, Chris Blair, what's uh, what's the tech you're using? Um, I have used a couple of different things in the past. Uh, I just over the holidays purchased a uh, a Phantom Three standard. Um, personally, I bought it, um, mm -hmm. and that was mainly to get my hands on a drone and do like you guys are saying, and just kind of get used to the aerodynamics, getting used to. Um, flying the thing manually, but also mm -hmm. kind of testing it out with uh, some of the mapping applications. Um, and then once I get the imagery post or, you know, post process it and do that kind of stuff. 
So I've worked with the Phantom 3 standard. I've also used the um, the EB AG, which is a fixed wing drone. Um, I can't remember exactly who makes the oh SenseFly. SenseFly makes the EB. That drone is a little little bit different than the quadcopters. Obviously, it's fixed wing. Um, that one comes with two cameras. It comes with the RGB camera and comes with the uh, near infrared camera as well. Mm. So we were able to test a little bit of uh, infrared applications um, using that drone. So it's kind of a nice comparison, seeing the difference between how a fixed wing basically records the data, how it ends up in post-processing compared to a quadcopter. Um, that's one of the main reasons why I got the, the Phantom 3 to kind of test it out and see how it compares um, to the research we were doing with the fixed wing. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up fixed wing because this goes back to, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different things in here, but, but really just like anything in any business or science or even field science, you need to use the right tool for the right job, right? So um, if you're doing a wide area survey for something and you, and you, need, you really need speed and you're not really too concerned, maybe it's all flat, you're really not too concerned with obstacles too much, I think fixed wing is really the way to go on some stuff like that. But if you're doing some, say, close-in photogrammetry on buildings and features and things like that, that would be really hard to do with fixed wing, <laughs> if, not, if not impossible, um, or just like doesn't make any sense. So that's when a drone, so you can go up and down, you can hover, you can do different things. You might have a challenging takeoff scenario or something like that, or maybe you're in an urban environment and you just can't get your fixed wing out and fly it. Um, but uh, that's definitely right tool for the right job sort of thing. Um, Chris Hipwood, are you guys experimenting with fixed wing at all? Uh, well, I guess I just want to say first off, um, I'm very jealous. I would love to have a SenseFly EB. That's actually <laughs> one of the fixed wings I would, uh, I would strongly consider picking up. Uh, it's a bit of an initial investment. Um, however, it's, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is a pound and a half uh, foam wing, uh, fixed wing, very heavy on the uh, on the automation uh, and from operating it from a control station. Mm -hmm. So um, that would definitely be a platform that I would consider using uh, for large areas or, you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, compared to flying a oct uh, octocopter or something that's 20, 30 pounds, that if, if there was a problem and it came falling out of the sky, um, if a sense fly had that issue, you're pretty much talking about the kinetic energy of a football hitting you. Uh, so a sense fly would be far safer, far less uh, potential for, you know, collateral damage and for hurting somebody or damaging property. Um, but yeah, that SenseFly is an awesome machine from everybody I've talked to that's used it. What's the propulsion system on the SenseFly? Is it uh, a single prop, multi-prop, um, and, and where is it, front or back on the wing? It's right in the center of the uh, basically the fuselage of the um, of the plane itself, and it's just a single mm -hmm. propeller. There's really nothing to it. Um, you wind it up, and when you're getting ready to launch it, um, you let it get a little bit of, uh, you know, let it wind up, get some propulsion going. You hold it up and you let it go, and it basically does everything for you. It flies uh, waypoints and collects a photo at every single waypoint based off of hmm. the grid that you you know you predetermine either in the software or you can pull in a uh, either a shape file or a KML or something like that. And you tell it how how dense you want the photos to overlap, and that's it. There's nothing to it. That's pretty awesome. And is the is it? I mean, does it basically have a radio like any um, uh, RC aircraft, like RC airplane, you know, fixed-wing airplane? Yeah, it sure does. And then 
on the other side, you basically have a little antenna that you hook into a laptop that you, mm-hmm. you know that it uses as a base station, and it flies off of that. And the range is pretty good. I want to say the range is either two or three kilometers, um, if not more, from the mm-hmm. base station to where you can fly it. All right, uh, Chris Hipwood. In the last few minutes of this segment, um, where did you? What did you learn on? Did you learn how to fly drones on the on that first one that your that your boss bought? Uh, no, I did. Um, I did what Matthew did. I, I purchased a, a small, cheap um, uh, quadcopter. It was like a fifty dollar or seventy five dollar mm-hmm. drone I got off Amazon called the Blade Nano QX. Nice. Um, the the nice thing about getting one of those cheap drones is they're very hard to get a, into a hover and to not crash constantly because there's no <laughs> GPS. Uh, there's no altimeter or barometer, I should say. So mm-hmm. all it can, all that the computer is assisting you in doing is uh, keeping it level and uh, and pretty much just controlling the motors to to keep it somewhat stable in flight. And so uh, learning on those would be great because they're a lot harder to fly than your Phantom. The Phantoms or or expensive drones, uh, they do a lot of work for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess me being a paranoid. Uh, you know, entry-level aviator, uh, I'm always worried about what if the GPS goes out on my really expensive helicopter? You're going to need to know how to fly it without GPS. And so learning on that that cheap $50 one is great practice for that potential uh, bad scenario. Um, even on the more expensive ones, they, they have a barometer in the IMU, and so they maintain a certain altitude. So even if you lose your GPS, it's going to hold its height and uh, and it's going to stay stay uh, level and uh, and so even then the cheap drone is still going to be harder to fly than your larger one if if parts start going bad. Uh, and that being said, though, on the newer DJI uh, helicopters like the Phantom Four and the Matrice Six Hundred, um, they've got a lot of redundancy, multiple IMUs, in some cases multiple GPS units. So mm-hmm. even then those failures taking place, you've potentially got a backup system uh, to help you out with there. But I would strongly strongly recommend getting one of those cheaper uh, helicopters. And then also you could get a that uses an actual RC controller. Uh, so you can also further practice your muscle memory uh, and really just having that right reaction to, to controlling it. Well, that's the muscle memory is really the, I'm glad you said that. That's really the key to this whole thing because, um, you know, just like getting your pilot's license, it's it's actually not hard to fly a plane, right? You take off, you just basically floor it and pull up a little bit. Um, I always heard, you know, you, you pull up to take off, you pull up even farther to go back down because <laughs> you'll stall the plane. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's getting that muscle memory for emergency situations. And that's what we always practice when I was getting my doing my flight training is you're constantly up there practicing for emergencies. Because when when you do have an emergency, you need that muscle memory to be able to react to it and then and then, you know, set the plane down, do whatever you got to do. And it's the same thing for the drones. You need to be flying in in relatively challenging wind conditions and doing all these things and, you know, build yourself up to that before you start using it around other people and in situations where um, if something goes wrong, uh, it could actually cause a lot of damage. So, um, and that's just good. You know, that's just good being a citizen too. People are afraid of drones. We don't need to make them even more afraid by our crappy flying skills. So (laughs) learning how to handle these things and learning how to do that stuff is a great idea. Um, all right, let's uh, take our first break, and we'll come back on the other side of this and pick this uh, conversation back up and get a little more into uh, the use of some of these drones.
Nomad is an outdoor tech company focused on one thing, owning fewer things, being resourceful, and working together. I've got a couple of Nomad products, the modern build leather strap for Apple Watch and the carabiner for iPhone. The Apple Watch strap is well built and very affordable when compared to similar products online. I've had the carabiner for over a year now and I love it. Holds my keys and turns into an emergency lightning cable for my iPhone or iPad whenever I need it. Check out Nomad's other products at www.hellonomad.com and use the discount code APN for 20% off your order. That's www.hellonomad.com. Fulfill your minimum Minimalist mission, own less and live more with Nomad. And we're back from the break. So in the first segment, we were talking about the equipment that uh, all of us use, uh, all, all of us Chris's and a Matthew. And um, <laughs> so uh, I've got a question for all of you, and we can go around with this. What are some of the lessons that you've learned uh, in using drones for archaeological and environmental studies? You know, what are some of the lessons you've learned? What works? What doesn't work? And also, what are some of the particularly useful tech packages that you've seen in the field? Hey, guys. Uh, so one of the main things that I've learned using drones, um, specifically in mapping archaeological sites or areas where you suspect there may be sites, um, is using these things in and around vegetation and the limitations of basically photogrammetry whenever there is vegetation around. Um, so for my dissertation, um, or not my dissertation, my thesis rather, I'm using uh, the SenseFly and mapping a, a really large, uh, it's a 500 uh, hectare area, um, basically to map out four or five archeological sites that um, we suspected were located in drainage areas. And what I found basically is that drones and photogrammetry are really good for mapping areas where there's limited vegetation, where the camera can take photos of their earth. So when you go to render the, um, the elevation model that you have, um, you can do it really well as long as the photos are being taken of bare earth or at least near bare earth where you're taking pictures of grass or things like that. But whenever you get into areas where there's lots of vegetation, not only is the camera taking the photo of the top of the tree, the vegetation, the sticks, anything that may be in between the drone and the ground, but whenever you pull it into the software and you start rendering specifically elevation models, you're going to get a lot of noise. You're going to get a lot of interpolation that may be off. Um, so I, I think that's one of the main things that I've, you know, I've come across specifically, and I read a lot of other people talking about this, the limitations of uh, photogrammetry specifically for these types of environments. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, Chris Hipwood, have you experienced some of the same things? Oh, definitely. The, um, the photogrammetry has a lot of limitations when it comes to vegetation or um, as compared to like LIDAR, where you could potentially strip away that vegetation and post-processing uh, in your in your uh, point cloud. Um, that being said, I mean, compared to what we were able to put on site records before, uh, it's still pretty amazing. Uh, and I feel like <laughs> even with given those, those uh, limitations, it's a great place to start recording um, uh, the way sites are now uh, to provide, you know, a new avenue of, uh, of uh, I guess, a new model for the future that somebody 50 years or 100 years from now uh, could go back and see what a site looked like in uh, back in time. And especially if there had been 
uh, erosion or construction or something that destroyed the site that at least you've got some kind of three-dimensional record of it. But there is definitely strong limitations from vegetation. Uh, and that that leads into another question, too. And, and Chris, you can continue on this, Chris Hipwood. What, um, you know, what are you finding the primary uses for your droner from a CRM standpoint? Are you using these at all to to enhance anything on the individual site record, you know, on individual sites, or is it really more of a whole project kind of thing or designing projects to do with the drones? What are you, what are your primary uses for these at your company? Uh, lately it's been like you said, exactly trying to improve what we put into site records. Um, in a lot of cases we have site records from the seventies or eighties that don't even have photographs. Um, right. so it's kind of nice to even just be able to add some aerial photographs. Um, but we're able to, uh, you know, one thing that I think is really nice is you're able to show the relationship between sites. Uh, I feel like once you start taking photos of sites and especially where you've got your, the, the site that you're focusing on, but you've got other ones nearby, uh, it to me makes it easier to be a lumper versus a splitter um, because y it's easy on a map to say, oh, this is X amount of feet amount away. We'll just call them separate sites. Mm -hmm. um, but then from the air, you can kind of see the entire landscape and the environment. And it to me makes it uh, easier to say that, you know, as long as, of course, the 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 assemblage and, and the artifacts are related and we're talking about the same time period. But to say that, um, that it's one large site versus just trying to split it up into a bunch of different smaller loci or to, to rather to say it's a large site with different loci rather than splitting them all into individual sites. But it really, I think, uh, makes it easy for you to look, take a more holistic view of the area hmm. and, and the landscape in general and to communicate that to your audience. Because um, right. just some, some dots on a map, uh, it's it's not the same as seeing the photo of, of, let's say, the valley or something that you're working in. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then to be able to show within the photo, this is where we're finding these different sites. We've got milling over here. We've got uh, a, a big ceramic scatter over here or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's fantastic. Chris Sims, how many arguments do we have working at the China Lake Naval Weapons Center last year about, uh, well, maybe not us specifically, but I know there were arguments on the crew um, when we'd have a site kind of in a deflated area and then a short, a small sand dune um, and then another site on the other side of that, uh, trying to make the case that even though they had the, the distance separation to technically make them two separate sites, there were probably things underneath that sand dune. And it was just the deflated area that was, you know, showing the artifacts. And then, you know, the sand dune was covering the rest of it. But there was probably one contiguous site. Seeing that from a drone would have been um, very illuminating, I think. Oh, exactly. We had that discussion daily and basically <laughs> on every single site that we worked on, but that's not yeah. just confined to that particular cultural or environmental setting that we saw out at China Lake. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I had that kind of discussion almost daily throughout the Southeast as well. You know, like, mm -hmm. uh, um, Chris Blair and I had a conversation a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I w used to work at Fort Knox. He works there now. And, um, you know, I, uh, I would find a massive prehistoric site that, and when we would go and delineate the shovel testing of it, uh, we would have, you know, other positive shovel tests far enough away that you could split it into a separate site, but honestly, disturbance and land use practices, mm -hmm. uh, in between would suggest that it's one site, but that goes back to the comment that, uh, when you guys raised earlier about lumping versus splitting. And I think that the use of drones 
kind of helps us be smarter about how we record. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do in, in the field as far as like lumping or splitting, you know, you can like split for the, the ease of paperwork and management of like the tasks in the field, mm -hmm. but then a drone and the GIS capabilities, um, you know, and then whatever, um, national, national register recommendation you might make right. afterwards, you know, it, it kind of helps us inform the whole process. And that I think is probably one of the most, like you said, one of the most illuminating roles that drones can serve in mm -hmm. archaeology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Chris Hipwood, I'm, I'm curious about your guys' use of, of drones for um, like doing overviews and having big, you know, big picture views of sites. When I think of doing that, I think of places like China Lake where we've worked and, and El Centro down south and, and then anywhere in the Great Basin in Nevada, a lot of the places where we have sites are a long ways away from the vehicle, right? They're a long ways away. So are you doing this on a lot of sites that you can access pretty easily and then you're doing it later on? Or are you actually backpacking in anything and then using it like that? And then I guess if you're backpacking in, how do you deal with batteries? Um, you know, you guys must have spent a fortune on batteries. Yeah, we're uh, we've been we've been choosing sites that we can usually get easy access to, or just mm -hmm. that's been what's been served to us. I mean, we're typically doing a lot of CRM work for our local utility company, so we're usually near power poles, and that's what's yeah. bringing us out in the field. And there's usually access to it, although there are some poles that go straight up the side of a mountain, and um, <laughs> and in those cases, the the utility has to helo in or helicopter in. Uh, tools and air compressors and things like that. So, so far we haven't had to, to backpack in, in, in anything, but it's definitely been in my mind. Um, then yes, you would need to potentially lug a lot of batteries or you really are gonna have to focus on what kind of information you wanna get. If it's just photography on a basic level, I would go with uh, something very small like a DJI Mavic, uh, which is uh, like a pound and a half and the batteries are very light. Uh, it'd be a lot easier to backpack in. Mm -hmm would be an issue so you just you really want to ahead of time know what you want to photograph and what you want to do because as soon as you're in the air that battery is draining so you don't want to spend your time once you're in the air looking around going hmm, maybe should i do this or that you really want to ahead of time have a good idea of, of what you're trying to get and i would also strongly suggest um uh getting aerial scales uh so we've got a big 10-foot scale that we put out actually i've already got improvements i want to do on it and make it a north arrow as well but now you can get this top-down view and you want to give people a sense of scale uh with those photos um so that's additional stuff to, to lug in as well um right. but then uh it really once you get those photos out i haven't really been able to you know because of confidentiality really been able to show it off too much <laughs> uh it just goes to our information center mm -hmm. and um but I'm really excited to start getting a lot more of these site records to our information center. I've got a, actually about seven sites on a big project that we're doing a massive update for. And, uh, and yeah, I'm just waiting to, to get those in. And um, yeah, at that point when you're backpacking in, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> you're really gonna have to be smart about it. If you're near a vehicle and you could bring a generator, um, then you could probably have a little more time to, to play around. But Sometimes also the access you get to an area, you have to ask a lot of uh, permission from the powers that be. Um, uh, whoever owns the area, whether you're in a county park or in federal land or on private property, um, a lot of times there's 
every hour of flight you might get out in the field, you've spent hours trying to get all your ducks in a row to do it right. That if if something goes wrong, you're uh, you're protected. Because I mean, we're we're operating as a business, mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, and a lot of times for customers who have deep pockets, so they're a big target for being sued. Right. Have you guys noticed a, a tipping point on this yet for profitability? I mean, is is are the drones still are the drones still kind of a novelty for your clients, or are are people requesting it and you're you're able to actually? Because I know you guys have spent a lot of money on drones and a lot of money, like you said, on just dealing with everything that means you know flying drones. You have your Part 107 from the FAA. You know that took a long time. You've got, uh, um, you know, a lot of time invested in this. So is it something that you're, you're considering that is financially viable for the future? Are you guys going to keep doing this? Um, or are you just hoping, you know, hoping it becomes a requirement? <laughs> um, right now, it still kind of falls in the novelty area. Honestly, it seems to me that in the industry, the, the viability only has really come into play in the last uh, six months since Part 107 came out. Um, there's also, uh, rumors right now that there's a new set of rules coming out soon to add on and to mm -hmm. further, um, refine what's out there that, uh, there's going to be a new classification system for drones instead of just being below 55 pounds. It's going to be based more on how much potential harm it can cause if it comes out of the sky. Right. Um, but that's, that still needs to, to come out. But, um, as far as it's been a big cost for us, it, it's really been a bit of a novelty, and we have had a few cases where people request us specifically and uh, to to come out and do a UAV project. Um, uh, I think really 2017 is is shaping up that a, a lot of their radar. They know it's possible. They know there's a legal pathway, and mm -hmm. so uh, we just hope that the coming in early and learning the game early will put us in a good position to, to start capturing a lot more work, whether it's viable. I think it is viable. There's a lot of, uh, uh, golden nuggets out there. So hopefully we've, um, we've put ourselves in a position to be able to, to get a little bit of return on that, but, um, definitely not there yet. I, I think very, very few companies are at that level yet. It's been, um, mostly a money sink to get into the to get into the uh get into the market and um and to to be out there as somebody who knows what they're doing at the beginning of of a new technology being so wild yeah well early adopters always pay the price don't they so yeah yeah definitely yeah. uh chris blair i think i'm going to throw the same question over to you um do you uh you know from a from a business standpoint how is this going for you guys is it something you're going to keep pursuing on the hopes that it's um it becomes profitable or is it actually profitable for you guys yet um at the moment i i think it's still sort of a novelty to companies and businesses mm -hmm. um i've i've seen here and there drones integrating themselves into projects and scopes of work beforehand um and usually that has to do with you know a gis or uh, an archaeologist somebody that's familiar with photogrammetry kind of on the, the front end of things saying, listen, we can get you more value out of your project if you let us do this. We can build in a little, you know, a lot more information and maybe in some cases, you know, make pro the process of the project go a little quicker mm -hmm. and a little bit more efficient. Um, but I still think right now it's sort of a, it, it's such a new technology. Um, and with the FAA just kind of getting their things together at the end of last year as far as getting people licensed appropriately and getting the mm -hmm. testing situation straightened out. Um, I, I think that probably plays a part of it 
um, or okay. plays into this somewhat as well. So I think 2017 again is it, it's going to be it's going to be a lot better for drone use eventually in business. Nice. Nice. Okay. Um, Chris Hipwood, one, one last question on your types of drones, since you guys have a, a pretty big fleet of drones, it sounds like, um, is there one you're going to more than the others or are you, uh, partitioning off the different types of drones for different types of activities? Uh, right now it's sort of a battle between using the Phantom and the Matrice 100, which is the larger quadcopter. That being said, uh, at, at this point in time, if I was just, if I had the knowledge I had now and was starting from scratch, that Phantom 4 Pro um, would probably negate the need for the Matrice 100. Um, I know the new Inspire 2, which is the newest large quadcopter mm -hmm. that DJI has out, is pretty nice. Um, however, the Phantom 4 Pro has a, a 20 megapixel camera with a one inch sensor, uh, and it's a Sony camera, so it's good quality. And um, it's got obstacle avoidance on all four sides to 90 feet away it's supposed to land within inches of where it took off um so it's pretty hard to crash uh you know low light situations or if you've got a very, very uniform like a blank white wall uh you'll be able to still crash it but uh it's it's they're really making them a lot harder to crash these days uh at least with dji and they're just a tough competitor to beat right now um but yeah i think the phantom 4 pro could could be uh, an awesome tool for a lot of people just by itself. I feel like like Apple in the 80s, there are two different departments at DJI, one working on the Inspire and one working on the Phantom. And the Phantom, <laughs> and they're not talking to each other because I feel like the Inspire is supposed to be like a step up, right? Um, but the Phantom 4 Pro, you're right. I mean, it's an amazing quadcopter and it's 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 really jumping itself out of the prosumer level and getting more into the pro levels, you know, completely. Um, it's just its size, really. You know, it, it can't because of its size, it can't handle some heavier, um, some heavier payloads. So that I think drops it out of that um, fully pro level. But uh, and that's where you go up to something like the Inspire or the Matrice line, so you can start carrying heavier equipment. But um, yeah, it's but everything is being made smaller too on the at the same time. So I don't know, I I don't know what the future is of those other lines when your Phantom Four Pro can just do everything. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't the DJI Inspire too? That has object avoidance now too, I think, doesn't it? I, be I believe it does. Yeah, it has the same yeah. um, uh, same object avoidance. I think the biggest the biggest thing that would cause someone to go inspire if you're really heavy into cinematography uh, that you've got a gimbal that can spin around uh, what is it 580 degrees um, in in both directions and uh, and then it's uh, it can carry a bigger camera that can, you know, with a bigger sensor. And not only that, it can shoot uh, film in RAW, which mm -hmm. is very important for cinematographers. But then you're talking about more Hollywood level or entry level Hollywood level filming uh, for your average person or for somebody who just wants to, to take a short video of, of an archaeology site and then maybe show it at a conference or hopefully one day you can submit it to the information center. Uh, you know, they can't handle that much data themselves right now. Um, uh, that's still going to be fine for the majority of people, but it's really more, I think, the cinematographers who would be looking at that larger uh, Inspire. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, I haven't added too much to this episode because I have not flown a drone in real life, although I have played a lot of the Call of Duty games, and <laughs> sometimes you get to fly drones when you get, like, a kill streak. Um, so I feel like that would make me a really good drone pilot in real life because 
uh, like Chris Hipwood said, uh, I've got the muscle memory already built up from <laughs> using the dual joysticks. The practice, but practice, no. nice. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the practice, practice drone. Yeah, it's like a flight simulator. We can look at it that way. No, but in all seriousness, this has been a great discussion, and thank you guys so much for joining, again, the Archaeotech podcast. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of great info we've got here, and I think this year and this episode, you know, like we're seeing drones – uh, being viewed with a more legitimate um, position, you know, like that their value is no longer questioned. And, you know, I think Webby and I had a podcast on drones a little over a year ago here on Archaeotech, and we actually had to question the legitimacy of drones about a year ago because what we were seeing, um, you know, what, what was making it out into the press was really just surface level stuff uh no pun intended but it was like just a drone flying around taking a really beautiful facebook video stuff like that <laughs> and so you know all the info that you guys have shared um about the research value and its its role in guiding the whole process of field archaeology and environmental surveys you know it's amazing and it's really cool to see it shaping up like this Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with all that. And uh, we're definitely going to keep this conversation going and broaden these topics out and, and really do a deep dive on some stuff as we move forward into 2017. So thanks a lot, Chris, Chris, Chris and Matthew. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Lithodomos VR is a breakthrough virtual reality company that creates archaeologically accurate 3D reconstructions of the ancient world. For just $1.99 US, you can tour ancient Jerusalem from the comfort of your own home. Using their app, available from the App Store and Google Play, and with a VR headset such as Google Cardboard, you can see ancient Jerusalem in all of its first century CE historically accurate glory. Lithodomos was founded by Simon Young, and he says Lithodomos was inspired by a burning desire to travel back in time and see the ancient world firsthand. VR gave me the tools to do it. Check out Lithodomos VR at their website, www.lithodomosvr.com. All right. Well, we had a fantastic uh, episode with uh, the Chris's and Matthew on drones. Um, and so now we're on to the app of the day segment. And uh, mine has nothing to do with drones unless you consider <laughs> weather to be a, a factor in, in flying a drone. So it's a, maybe it's a massive is... factor. <laughs> yeah so on second thought maybe it is useful you can't you can't fly drones in any sort of precipitation whatsoever they're not sealed up most of the time so even if it's like a little misty out or foggy that could actually get into your drone motors and short everything out good grief <laughs> well then this is incredibly useful uh drone pilots and archaeologists alike um i actually learned about this i've been using weather underground on um, Apple, and I know they've got it for Android and whatever else, too. Um, I've been using Weather Underground for years. Even before it was an app, I preferred their website over just about any other forecast model just because their forecasts tend to be a little bit more accurate, and they use a synthesis of different prediction models. So it's pretty useful. Um, but I actually learned about this feature from Sonia, who's on the CRM Archaeology podcast, I was working with her in Arkansas, and she pulled up the smart forecast feature and taught me all how to do it. And so uh, you can set different parameters that you want. And so she set up a smart forecast for archaeology fieldwork 
that sets um, you have two different columns for whatever parameter you select. And so mm -hmm. there is an acceptable column and an ideal column. And so uh, the way she set it up, and I went ahead and copied her setup onto mine, is uh, I, I set up temperature, wind speed, snow intensity, rain intensity, and humidity. And after our discussion, I feel like all of those would be pretty useful for uh, flying drones as well. Um, so, you know, we've got temperature, uh, for example, we've got an acceptable limit of 15 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit with an ideal parameter of 35 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then, you know, you've got different parameters for all of the other ones. Um, ideally, you, you don't want it to be snowing or raining or really windy for, uh, for a drone. But, um, you know, for, if you're doing field work as well, those are very limiting factors. And for the, <clears throat> the way I learned about it is we were working in the forests in the southeast and, you know, uh, there's a lot of dead trees around, and so on this particularly windy day, Sonia had the tolerances set so that she she could see when, and it'll show you like green and red too. So it's like if all of the tolerances are met, then it'll show you the hour the hourly breakdown for the day where your tolerances are met. And so you know we had a windy day, and you know branches and trees were falling and stuff like that. And so it was good that we weren't out there because when we did return to the field uh, the next day, it was still windy and it was still kind of sketchy because we did see some trees and branches come down, but we saw downed trees all over the place, and you know that's a serious safety hazard. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it uh, those widowmaker trees. We used to actually. Uh, we were really stupid. We used to kind of actually push those over in South Carolina, um, and then uh, the tops <laughs> just break and fall on us. Because uh, yeah, don't small. do that. No, that's dumb. <laughs> that's very dumb. <laughs> um, but no, that's fantastic. This custom custom forecast. I don't know why um, other places don't do that. Because you usually just like when I use like a Weather Channel app or something like that. You know, I, I usually just scroll to like the same thing every time that I want to see. And I've got to go find yeah. it. And uh, being able to just get what we want to get is uh, is pretty fantastic. Absolutely. And anybody listening to this podcast, go over to um, archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. Find this episode and I'll have screenshots posted so you can copy the same tolerances that um, mm -hmm. I copied from Sonia. Super useful. Uh, you can tweak it as you see fit. But you know, the way Sonia had me set it up was, I feel like, is pretty good no matter what your environment is. Do they give you the ability to um, actually export those settings at all so you can just, like, airdrop them to somebody? Uh, you know, if they do, I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, that'd be pretty sweet if they could because then you could share them yeah. with your whole crew or, or share them online even. I don't know if that's even possible. But, um, yeah, so that's pretty awesome. Um, all right, well, uh, my um, my app is actually drone related and i'm hoping we haven't talked about this before i don't think so i didn't see it on our list uh, but it's called autopilot and it's from autoflightlogic.com if you just try to search autopilot in google you obviously get a lot of stuff that's not related to this application <laughs> so if you type in autopilot ios app um, i think they have a uh yes this does no actually it doesn't look like this works on um on uh android models However, uh, 
the system requirements here show that it does. This is okay. So first off, autopilot. It's for flying drones. Okay, if you're flying like a like a DJI drone, which is mostly what these guys support, um, they support all the DJI series. You still turn on the drone with your DJI app, right? The DJI Go app. You still use that to kind of kick off your drone, set everything up, and then um, you know calibrate your camera, format your SD card, do whatever you've got to do. And then once you've got it all up and running, you flip over to the autopilot app. The autopilot will also give you um, all the uh, telemetry information from your drone, like your battery, location, distance, you know, altitude, all that stuff, and a lot of other things as well. Um, but what this thing allows you to do is it allows you to create and save um, not only flight plans, but entire like uh, flight workflows, I guess you would call them. So you can, um, like from a cinematography kind of standpoint, which is kind of what they promote this for, you can do different things. Like I'm going to fly, th- fly this course. Okay. So first off you set this course and you can do it with setting different waypoints, or you can simply just draw with your finger on a, on a map and say, I want to go this way. And then it, it smooths out all those lines. So, you know, your crazy finger drawing isn't all jagged, but, um, it smooths out all the lines and then you can add different points in there, but you can say, Okay, so for this, from here to here, focus the camera on this, and the camera will, will, will move as the drone's going forward. The camera will lock in on a target, and then it will refocus to the next target, and then to go to the next target. And it will just fly this entire flight path for you. And when it's done, you can have it either hover at the end, fly it again, you know, over and over and over again if you want for some reason, if it's like a, like a loop, or it will just come back to its home point, waypoint one usually, or the actual takeoff location of the drone if that's not waypoint one. Um, one of the cool things, uh, we use it for is we actually use it to, when we're doing photogrammetry of like survey areas, I'll simply just draw out a whole bunch of transects that I want the drone to fly. And then I'll let the system interpret that into straight lines with curves. And I can choose the, the Bezier curve on that. So I can say, do I want this to be a squared off end? Like we walk our transects when we're actually doing survey, or do I want the drone to fly a nice curve at the end? And I can choose that as a percentage. And then I can also choose which direction my camera is facing, um, which direction the drone is facing as it's flying. Cause your drone, unlike an airplane, doesn't have to be pointing forward to fly forward. It can be pointing, you know, one direction and flying, flying a completely different direction that, cause that's how drones work. And then your camera's pointing a third direction. So you can really get crazy with it. But, uh, the autopilot software, it'll take as an input also KML files, um, which you can export, you can export like a shape of your, you can create your transect, say in ArcGIS if you want, um, and some other information, export that as a KML file and import that straight into autopilot and then save it in there um, for future use. So you could create all your, your flight transects prior to ever going into the field, which is probably the smart way to do it to begin with. Um, yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah. I mean, it, that takes a lot of, uh, I don't know, it takes, it takes a lot of the guesswork and all that out of actually flying the drone if you've got it all set up ahead of time yeah uh, it's super easy the the app is a little intimidating at first and it helps to look through their videos because there's a lot of stuff in there um and it helps to uh, helps to really dig into it on the videos and, and understand what its capabilities are um but aside from that once you once you do figure it out you can set up a new flight path super fast you know and, yeah and just work it well here's a dumb question uh you know, like I mentioned earlier at the closing of the show, uh, you know, I have not flown a drone. But if you've got an app like this set up with your drone, do you even need to be that good of a pilot to to fly the drone, or you know, can it well, just kind of do it by itself? 
Uh, yes, but then a very resounding no. And I'll tell you why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in certain circumstances, if you're out on flat ground, you know, and you're, you're just like, there's no obstructions, there's no trees, there's no anything, then sure, you can, you can try a flight path. And, and if it doesn't work out, if it looks like the drone's just going off on its own, then you can cancel it with no problem, fly back, figure out what you did wrong. Maybe, maybe it was the wrong orientation. Maybe your waypoint one is out in another city and you didn't realize it. You know, your scale's all off. I don't know. But let me give you a scenario. So one of the one of the first times I used this software was we were recording. We were trying to do um, so uh, transects parallel to a sloping uh, basalt outcrop landform. So it was we were at the bottom of the hill, and we wanted to go from the top of the hill, following parallel along. And then as each transect got closer to us, the drone would drop in altitude a little bit, right? So we set it at a constant altitude, and what I did was I drew out the transects and waypoint one was not at the low end where we were. Waypoint one was up and to the right, like at the very top of the hill, probably at an altitude. The top of the hill was probably in an altitude about 50 feet over our heads. So the drone was going to be about a hundred feet over our heads in total. Cause I think it's about 50 feet off the ground. Well, the minute I hit engage for this thing, the drone practically flew right into the hill because what I hadn't accounted for was the drone's own GPS wasn't apparently working very well. And one of the things it does is it uses uh, look down radar to figure out how far it is off the ground, right? Not just GPS, but actual radar to figure out how it is, how far it is off the ground. And when it tilted forward at a high rate of speed to get to waypoint one, I mean, it was just hauling ass to waypoint one. I'm not sure what determines that speed because you can determine the transect speed, but it just like took off like a bat out of hell to go to waypoint one. And because it was tilted forward, its radar was looking actually down and back and not actually straight down at the hill. And it practically flew itself into a basalt outcrop. And all that happened in a span of about three seconds. And I, I had to have my finger on the kill switch and then take over that drone's flying operations immediately so it didn't crash into a boulder. And Wow. You know, so you like you cannot panic. You've, you've got to be <laughs> ready to act quickly yes upon that. yes and that's why that's why after after that because i downloaded that application because we wanted to do that and then after that i've got a huge um, sports complex about a mile from me and you know i go i go early in the morning sometimes when nobody's over there and i'll go out onto the three soccer fields that are that are right next to each other and uh there's huge like 200 foot tall light poles but they're on the very edges so i have that whole soccer field area when nobody's on it to practice in a nice safe open environment <laughs> which is what i would recommend to everyone try not to go to a park or something like that because parks always have people and they always have regulations um try to go to somewhere open preferably out in the middle of nowhere um you know some public land or something like that but practice somewhere where you're not going to be uh you're not going to have people and if that drone goes nuts it's only going to do that until the battery dies and then fall out of the sky and not hurt anybody so yeah, and yeah. I would refer back to episode 44 that we recorded with mm -hmm. the Chris's and, <laughs> and Sally and Matthew yeah. uh, on kind of best practices on, you know, like uh, things to consider about the sociability of flying drones. Like mm -hmm. don't fly them like you had mentioned. Don't don't fly them, uh, you know, in crowded areas. Absolutely don't fly them near an airport or a government facility, stuff like that. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, just be responsible about it because the more people start hating on drones, uh, if we keep perpetuating that with our bad flying behavior and our bad etiquette, then uh, you know that's just going to make the situation worse. So, 
Anyway, also, you know, while we're on that topic, I've been out, I have been out at that park, uh, or not park, but that sports complex quite a few times when people just walk up to me. Don't be, you know, I, I don't think most people would be like this, but don't be um, cagey about it. Just be like, yeah, hey, check this out, you know, and if people want to see it, let them see it. Obviously, don't let them fly it. There's liability there, but, you know, let them see it. Talk to them about it because people are just like, you know, this thing is scary, but spread the good word and say it's not scary. It's just a, you know, it's just a flying camera. So, um, you know, don't be afraid of it. But, all right. So uh, I think that's it. Um, check out the links to these applications in our show notes. Um, I'm definitely going to check out the uh, the Weather Underground. I've had that before, but I've never I've never used it for the um, for the programmable uh, forecast. You know, the custom forecast. That's pretty amazing because um, I do. Not only do I fly the drone around here in Reno, but I also I, I go up with um, Civil Air Patrol flying airplanes all the time. So being able to customize that forecast to what we need is, is pretty great. Um, so thanks, Chris. Um, thanks for joining me. And uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll be back with some more drone podcasts later on and, uh, and some more amazing topics coming up that came from the Society for Historical Archaeology meetings. So more stuff coming in the future. Yep. See you next time. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.